The only way I would suggest to combat racism, to combat exploitation, oppression, is to build autonomous, radical, multiracial, working class organizations. The LGBT struggle has made its biggest impact when it has been out on the streets, radical, and uniting with wider forces. Workers deserve fairness, equity, and roses too. Welcome to Spring Radio, a podcast for socialist ideas in action. I'm Sara Shaheed, Spring member and co-host of the Spring Radio podcast. Today's episode is about centering equity in the fight for workers' power and the struggle for socialism. In this episode, you will hear from Krishna Saravanamutu, a writer, activist, and criminal defense lawyer based in Toronto. You will also hear from Loretta Fisher, an advocate for economic, racial, climate, and food justice, who is passionate in telling grassroots stories to reveal our human connections. She is a member of the Workers' Action Center and Spring Socialist Network, and has recently been accepted as an official elder of the Partnership and Accountability Circle of Toronto. Lastly, you will hear from Robin Letson, a Spring member and psychotherapist. The three talks you will hear today were part of a session in Spring's first ever conference on socialism, Red October, and they were recorded on October 14, 2023, exactly a week after Israel started bombing Gaza and a month after far-right hate groups mobilized across the Canadian state to protest sexual orientation and gender identity education in schools. As revolutionary socialists, we believe that only workers' self-activity can bring about the emancipation of the entire working class. But the working class is not a monolith. It begs the question, though, how do workers' identities interact under capitalism? and serve the ruling class, is this all just liberal identity politics or, you know, what is the role of socialists in all of this? In this episode, you will hear why fighting transphobia, homophobia, racism, and sexism is inherently a workers' issue and why socialists need to be building anti-oppressive, multiracial working class movements. With that, let's hear from Krishna, Loretta, and Robin in that order. So we're here uh, to commemorate the Russian Revolution, the October Revolution of 1917. uh, And it naturally brings up a question. Well, first of all, what was that revolution about? Who was this guy Lenin? Why was he so important? Well, the reason it's important is because it was the first socialist revolution. And what I mean by that was the first time where working people, poor people, not only seized power, but they held power. And of course, that revolution went on to change the face of the 20th century. We saw revolutions spread across Asia, Latin America, Africa, the Middle East, and inspired oppressed poor and working people that they too 
just like us today, can organize to change our society. So if we ask ourselves, why is the Russian Revolution important? It's important because it happened, but it's also important because it offers us a clear path forward, right? So that's the first important point that I want to make. The second thing I want to talk about, because this panel is about equity. Why do we center equity in the struggle uh, against capitalist oppression? Why do we center equity uh, in the struggle for workers' rights, in the struggle for uh, worldwide uh, proletariat revolution? Well, when Lenin was thinking about his arguments around imperialism, and by imperialism what I mean is simply a system uh, of competition that exists between capitalist states, where sometimes they cooperate with each other, and sometimes they're in uh, competition with each other, right? Um, so Lenin used this definition around imperialism, and he looked at national oppression not only within the European context, but he also looked at issues of white supremacy in the United States at a time when the American communist movement, unfortunately, was not where they should have been. They were under the impression at that time that if they were to begin talking about issues like race, it would divide the working class. And Lenin firmly rejected that. In fact, he made an intervention in the international socialist movement that then led directly to the US Communist Party taking seriously the struggle of black workers in the US, not only taking seriously their struggle, but also following their leadership. And that's a very important point for us today. Because if we're going to organize the working class, we have to meet the working class where it's at, and we have to take leadership and direct direction from the working class. And that working class is not just white people, not just able-bodied people, not just men. It's racialized people, it's women, it's people that don't necessarily fit into the kinds of dominant narratives that we think about when we think about the labor movement. So th the point is that for Lenin, national oppression, capitalism, white supremacy, these things were all wrapped up within, within one another. Um, at the same time, Lenin never went on to say that uh, racism is just simply a reflection of capitalism. He never said that. What he said, though, was that racism, national oppression, these were distinct forms of oppression. And that in order for us to fight for socialism, we have to first tackle issues around national oppression. And so what he did was he actually opened up the axis of struggle, right? Because he didn't allow uh, the, the struggle for socialism to be defined narrowly through the class struggle, right? What he understood is that there were multiple axes of struggle beyond the class struggle narrowly understood. And so the question uh, about class exploitation, its relationship to racial oppression, these were already debates. These were features within the debates that Lenin and his comrades were having in the 20th century. And so if we ask ourselves, why is the Red October Revolution important? It's important because we had revolutionary leaders seizing power, workers seizing power, and centering the struggles of the oppressed. That's the second important point that I want to make. Now, of course, there's a little caveat here. Of course, there were debates that happened amongst global communist leaders, uh, co leaders like Lenin, leaders like N.M. Roy from the Communist Party in India. They may not have always agreed on, on the precise points about which section uh, of a society uh, was going to lead the struggle. Uh, a lot of this, I think, is inconsequential because those debates were grounded at a particular time, in a particular moment, uh, and also in a very particular geographic location. Um, similarly, people like C.L.R. James, he believed that that the only class uh, that could fight for revolution were enslaved plantation workers. Similarly, people like W.E.B. Dubois, he talked about colonized workers leading the struggle for global revolution. But the common thread that existed amongst all of them is that racism and oppression were endemic to capitalism itself, right? So that's a very important point. You cannot have capitalism without racism, and you cannot have racism without capitalism. 
And so with the emergence of modern capitalism out of Europe and its eventual expansion into the colonies and eventually into the establishment of settler colonial states like Canada, uh, like Israel, like Australia, like apartheid South Africa, uh, we saw again from the very beginning of the foundations of these states that racism was integral to the project of capitalist expansion and of capitalist state building. So the creation of racial hierarchies that we saw within those states, again, those were vital, those were necessary for the expansion of capitalism. And what it meant is that the wealth of a very small minority of people in the world uh, came at the expense of the world's majority. The world's majority, proletariats, just working people all around the world continued to suffer under poverty, exploitation, and repression by both their own local ruling classes and by imperialist powers. And I think this is important because if we're talking about confronting capitalism, its horrors, its violence here in this country, then we have to also acknowledge that capitalism could not have been established across these lands without genocide, without settler colonialism. In that fact, settler colonialism and genocide were foundational to, 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 to the establishment of the Canadian legal state. So we're not talking about mental attitudes, right? Often when we talk about racism, we're talking, at least for with liberals, you know, the liberal response to racism, what is it? We all know it, right? Uh, we need more training, we need more diversity, we need more representation. These aren't simply about people's bad ideas or bad attitudes. This is about social structures. It's about economic structures. It's about political structures. And so institutions in Canada that reproduce racism, again, can't be simply attributed to a, a few individuals who have bad ideas. Uh, what we know is that these are systems and that these are interlocking systems of violence. So one of the important implications for us, because we're not just here to talk, are we? No, right? We're here to organize. We're here to change a world. We're to, you're here to actually win. So the Im implication for us is that anything we do in our movements has to actually target the everyday manifestations of exploitation and oppression that our people are facing in their communities, in their neighborhoods, in their workplaces. So linking our demands to end racist policing, to end unemployment, to end substandard housing, to end the neglect within our schools. These are demands that are fundamentally linked to an anti-capitalist struggle. Now I risk, I feel, I fear that I'm probably gonna be running out of time in four minutes, got it. So I'll, 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 I'll conclude with this. When I'm talking about racism, and, and I wanna define this as well, we're talking about violence, abandonment, and neglect. We have to give definitions to the things we're talking about. If we're talking about imperialism, we have to be precise about what we're talking about. If we're talking about racism, we have to be precise. Why? This is not just an abstract thing, it's not an academic thing. This is about how do we conduct the struggle. It's the ideas, once we have clarity with our ideas, then we can take action in unity. So I'll leave you with this. The only way that we're gonna win today, because the, the question comes down to well, what's to be done? Right? That's the question that came about in 1917, what is to be done, and in 2023, it's still the question, what is to be done? And the only way I would suggest to combat racism, to combat exploitation, oppression, is to build autonomous, radical, multiracial, working class organizations that have the power to dismantle the current system that we live in and to build new ones. And so that means that we need to embark upon projects like building organizations like Spring so that we can build its revolutionary, multiracial, 
rank and file power so that we can fight explicitly for socialism and we can engage in a struggle that's rooted independently in class struggle, self-organization, and self-activity. It's only through our own struggle, only by our own hands, only by our own efforts, that we're actually going to win a better world. We're not going to change the world. We're not going to improve our situation by waiting for somebody else to come and save us. Right? It's up to us to do it, and this is how we're going to do it. So I'll leave it at that note, and I'll pass it off to Comrade Loretto. The equity that we're talking about today, I looked it up in the dictionary. I was going to start talking about the differences between equality and equity, and we might already know that. We all, and so I'm basically just going to concentrate on experiences that, that describe it. At North York Board of Education, I was the one black typist in psychological and assessment services for almost five years till my job was suddenly yanked out from under me when I tried to return from maternity leave. My usual manager was not there to protect me against colleagues who were eager to hate me for no other reason than my skin. I was there for years doing the job very adequately. No one complained about my work, but some literally complained that I was black. Upon looking back, I understand that uh, my, my only ally was my manager who um, who had intervened for me at various times, but then she went on leave shortly before I was returned to return from maternity leave. So a new interim manager told me I no longer had my job. She never even met me. You know, was she influenced by the overt racism my colleagues had not failed to express throughout the five years that I had worked there? I think perhaps yes. And then when it happened, I had no idea of my rights. I, I assumed I didn't have any. Never heard of exit interviews or severance pay or anything. Was forced immediately as a young single mom of two to go on welfare, although I'd never been on it before. My adoptive siblings were so disgusted with me and my alleged stupidity for leaving a good job. Uh, they were good jobs, but I was pushed out. But I never breathed a word about how I was pushed out. That was the cardinal rule. Racism is quite invisible. And being born into this environment, I had no idea that my silence was being complicit. It was simply the only way to survive. I will survive was my motto. So I learned early on that standing up against unfairness would always be interpreted by others as ungratefulness no matter what. I was well-trained to not stand up figuratively speaking or show any assertiveness on the one hand, while on the other hand, I was routinely criticized for my inability to be assertive. For about 18 years, I worked for seven different ministries in the OPS. And for some of those jobs, I was picked to attend assertiveness training. Kind of ironic, they likely would not have hired me in the first place if I presented myself as an assertive black woman, would they? Yeah. But would I ironically lose my job from failing assertiveness training? <laughs> I remained a meek and mediocre student of the class. That's how I survived. That was then. This is now. So my progeny have to discover their own ways to survive the subtle ironies and the outright insane rules of racism. For instance, one daughter of mine was celebrated at school for being on the dean's list. But at the very same time, she was on the list for possible suspension because she broke school rules, because she wore a bandana for a headband. On another note, I just learned to be wary of actually being singled out to receive special help. It often backfires in this narrative of 
hey, we've done this and this for, for you now, so we're now allowed to speak to you and about you like crap, and you have to take it. If you don't, what a big stab in our back or bite the hand that feeds you, you'd be guilty of after all we've done for you. Exactly what that queen said to her new daughter-in-law after paying for the wedding. Exactly what Trudeau said to Selena Cesar Chavanez when Selena decided she was not a good fit for her job instead of him deciding it. After all we've done for you. Exactly what York University is saying to black faculty who stand up for their rights against racist bullying. Exactly what a portion of white society who practice racism are saying every time BIPOC from inside their borders speak up. You're so lucky you're here. If you don't like it, go back to your own country. Such a mindless and incorrect refrain considering how many centuries people of African descent have been here and considering how we even ended up here. Go back has been chanted at me personally, but facts about such treatment would never pass my lips. I was born on the island of Montreal, by the way. And regarding the question at interviews, why did you leave your last job? My answer was always, um, I, um, I moved. I wasn't able to respond with the actual facts, which were I was forced to move due to a reprisal against me resulting in job loss for simply asking for fairness or from routine bullying steeped in racism pushing me out. Then fast forward to witnessing the very same kind of things happening to my daughters. Painful and very few avenues for justice. No effective ways for me to stop the history or the ongoing wheels of labor force and biased practices. The fact that they are, they go together and they are endemic. As Krishna was saying, a political party or a political movement willing to address racial injustice? Is there such a thing? Especially under capitalism, I'm painfully reminded that regardless of how progressive the political party, it's pretty darn limited at addressing racism because the racism, it's, racism itself is never visible. People come here to Canada to get away from racism. That's the story anyway. Never really exists here, right? The labor force laws have been predicated on racism, though, in my humble experience. Until this day, I'm a witness that the capitalism and discrimination in the labor force are not two different things, as Krishna was saying. Many BIPOC who simply try to plan their lives and achieve their dreams will be interrupted again and again. We will have to pivot and swerve and have the rug pulled out from under us. Why did you leave your last job? Indeed, workplace bullying will abound unless those affected stand up against racial injustice. But not just that. There's another crucial thing that has to happen. Our allies must also stand up and speak out. Our unblind allies, those not historically or directly affected by racism, but they are compassionate enough to see, to start some good trouble against the status quo of racially biased systems. Our allies must be equally brave enough to intervene dedicated enough to help deconstruct the racial bias embedded in social systems. And I will strategize until my dying days to change this immigration labor system that is clearly the new slavery. Workers deserve fairness, equity, and roses too. Thank you.
So my portion of the panel is going to focus on a look at some of the ways in which socialism and struggles for sexual and gender liberation have intersected. And I'll also briefly discuss two recent case studies that might help inform how we can continue to thread struggles for workers' power and two-spirit queer and trans liberation together. And I'll just start with situating myself. I'm a queer and trans person, I'm a white settler, and I work as a psychotherapist in private practice. Being part of SPRING is my first experience participating in a socialist organization, though I've been involved in leftist movements kind of peripherally in Toronto for several years. And the work of putting this paper together has helped me to account for my own political development as a queer person, and more recently as a socialist. Uh, my work as a psychotherapist feels important to discuss briefly, and I'd welcome further conversations on how this work can be more deeply shaped by anti-oppressive and socialist politics. The clients I see in my psychotherapy practice are racially diverse, young, queer, and trans people. Many of them are students, many of them are working low-wage jobs in the service industry or in frontline social service work, and I've seen the direct impacts that our current social, political, and economic order have on the sense of confidence and possibility among my clients, and I prepared this talk with them in mind. Much of what I focus on with the people I see in therapy is how their early experiences of relationship within the family have shaped their sense of self, and I want to start here with a brief historical account of socialist critiques of the family. In her text, The Red and the Rainbow, which I'll talk more about later. British socialist Hannah D notes, for Marxists, the key to understanding how people's attitudes to sexuality, gender, and sex are formed, and how they decide what's normal in a given society, lies in our understanding of the family as an institution rooted in class societies, both capitalist and earlier forms. In the mid 19th century, Frederick Engels provided a framework for locating the roots of sexual oppression in the wider organization of society in his text, The Origin of Family, Private Property, and the State. Engels use it, used an internationalist, feminist, and anti colonial analysis to denaturalize essentialist categories of gender and sex. His historical account of early class societies reveals how an emergent ruling class for its own ends, to quote D, required a privatized family based on the strict monogamy of the woman who is to produce children whose paternity and therefore rights to inherit wealth could be guaranteed. As capitalism took hold as a global economic order, the bourgeois ruling class had to reshape the family form, both in opposition to an older order and in service of its own stability. At the same time, Shifting social and economic circumstances began to shift possibilities for sexual relations. Again, to quote D, as growing numbers of people were drawn into urban areas, the ties between personal life, the traditional family, and old conventions began to loosen. This opened up different possibilities for sexual experiences and the emergence of subcultures based around men having sex with each other in the urban centers of Western Europe from the late 17th century. However, for a capitalist order that relies on the reproduction of exploitable labor, non-reproductive sex is an ongoing existential threat. As an albeit small section of the working class began to engage with freer and broader sexual expression, the ruling class, particularly in Britain, once again looked to the family as a significant institution for entrenching social control and privatizing the reproduction of labor. Denotes that Engels' text was published in a moment where homosexual men were being criminalized in Britain for the first time. To quote Dee again, the efficient organization of capitalist industry required a deference to hierarchy and discipline which the family had traditionally instilled. 
And it was thought better that workers be tied to their individual families by a sense of responsibility and the need to be self-sufficient than be drawn towards the collective organizations of class warfare. The early years of the Russian Revolution offer a rich example of how critiques of gender and sexual relations were transformed into social policy and practice. As D notes, fundamental to the revolution were the attempts to build a material basis for those declarations by mobilizing society's resources to give people real control over their lives, from the workplace to their most intimate relationships. Moral codes were uprooted and tied explicitly to the ruling class. The revolutionary government decriminalized homosexuality and abortion, and even recognized a marriage between women. Bolshevik leader Alexandra Kolontai proliferated writings on the ways in which sexual relationships are distorted by private property, inequality, and war. While the early years of the Russian Revolution point to a high watermark for gender and sexual freedom, the ensuing reactionary turn of Stalinism and its violent betrayal of queer people, along of course with constant anti-communist propaganda by capitalist states, has worked to obscure this history from the consciousness of many 2SLGBTQ people today. Through the 20th century, right up to the current moment, movements for sexual, sexual and gender equality have been susceptible to capture by the ruling class when they're disconnected from class struggles and intersectional understandings of oppression. Just as we can trace a history of connections between socialism and sexual freedom, we can also trace a history of capitulations to the ruling class by gay equality organizations. And once rights within a liberal dem democratic state context are won, they can easily be used by the ruling class as a way to signal its progressivism and to create a sense of dependency by queer and trans people on the state for rights and protections. I'd like to turn now to two examples of queer solidarity organizations who were, whose work was imbued with a strong sense of history and the potential for unity among liberation struggles. Gays and Lesbians Support the Minors was a small organization of politically conscious gay and lesbian people in Britain in the 1980s. At the time, Margaret Thatcher's government was clawing back gains made by working class people and minorities. Minors, a powerful bloc within the working class, began a national strike in 1984. Those involved in LGSM in London were aware of the significance of this strike for working people across the country. The organization started by collecting funds at queer hangout spots across the city, and chapters of LGSM began to form around the country. Among a number of lessons that can be drawn from this organization, uh, a particular interest to me is the political education that members were able to do within their community. So one member shared what he would tell people who asked, why support the miners? Why, what have they ever done for us? He'd respond, what do you mean miners don't support us? The miners dig coal, which is used for fuel, which makes electricity, that runs these disco lights. Would you go down there and do that? <laughs> Part of the reason I support them is they go down and do it. I wouldn't. And the consciousness of striking miners was raised as well through a process of receiving solidarity from another oppressed group. So as one miner stated in a speech at a gay pride event, now 140,000 miners know that there are other causes and problems. We know about blacks and gays and nuclear disarmament, and we will never be the same. Uh, I wanna talk about QUIA, Queers Against Israeli Apartheid, um, which was active in Toronto from 2008 uh, into the mid 2010s. QUIA was founded by a small group of queer activists in Toronto uh, who had become increasingly concerned with the use of gay rights to justify the Israeli government's occupation of Palestine and apartheid policies toward Palestinian people. QUIA marched with a sizable contingent in the 2009 Toronto Pride Parade. The following year, Pride Toronto, a nonprofit entity that depends heavily on corporate sponsorship to run its festivals each year, 
banned the words Israeli apartheid from use at the Pride Parade. Surprising, I think, to Pride Toronto, this sparked a really significant backlash among queers in Toronto and actually across the, the Canadian state. So there was a Don't Sanitize Pride campaign in Toronto, and other queers in cities across Canada started marching in Pride parades against Israeli apartheid. Toronto Pride was forced to reverse its decision in just two weeks, and Kwaya marched in the 2010 Toronto Pride Parade with an even larger contingent than in years before. Kwaya uh, saw itself as part of a lineage of international solidarity campaigns. At one of its first events, activist Tim McCaskill traced links between Kwaya and the Simon and Coley Anti-Apartheid Committee, a group that formed in the mid-80s in Toronto. Uh, and Tim notes, the lion's share of our activity was to do anti-apartheid work in Toronto's LGBTQ community and anti-homophobia work in the anti-apartheid movement. Similar to the organizing work of LGSM, Kwaya mobilized and built solidarity by insisting that gender and sexual liberation are bound up in broader struggles against exploitation and oppression. To quote Kwaya member Richard Fung, when people ask us, why are you talking about Palestine when you should be talking about gay rights, they do violence to something that has always been entwined. Maybe it isn't their intention, but it also says to queers of color and indigenous queers that their issues and their wholeness are less important than some mythic notion of LGBT rights that exist outside of class, outside of ethnicity, outside of power dynamics that claim gay movements as a space of middle-class gay white men. As Hannah D notes, the LGBT struggle has made its biggest impact when it has been out on the streets, radical and uniting with wider forces. The high points of struggle for sexual liberation have taken place whenever our struggles have flowed together in ways that present a more fundamental challenge to capitalism. And working class consciousness is also raised when struggle attends to issues of gender justice and sexual liberation. Today, Right-wing formations seek to destroy tenuous and piecemeal rights won by trans people in the U.S. and Canada. In a recent article for Spring, Lizzie Holding and Jay Lee argue that this attack on trans people operates to deflect working-class anger away from the rich who benefit from low wages and high prices and towards fellow members of the working class. A socialist theory of gender-based oppression can organize how we think about the rise in anti-trans violence and how we build solidarity without an orientation to the ways in which gender-based violence is a tool for maintaining capitalist, economic, and social order, elements of feminism have become disorganized and reactionary, attacking trans women along the very same lines as fascists do. At the same time, liberal democratic states will deploy examples of the very same rights and protections that are under attack to continue justifying the maintenance of the status quo, including the genocide in Gaza. As socialists, we need to take seriously the ways in which class struggle is inextricable from struggles for racial justice, decolonization, and gender and sexual liberation. We need to ensure that working class, two-spirit, queer, and trans people see themselves reflected in our organizations and know that their struggles, not only in the workplace, but in schools, on the borders, in the streets, and within the nuclear family are of key importance to the struggle in the struggle toward a free and just world. Thanks. Today's episode highlighted the importance of linking our movements to advance both economic and social change. Here are a few recent examples of these links being made. When anti-trans rallies were recently called across the Canadian state, the Ontario Federation of Labour 
Canada's largest federation of unions, mobilized workers to join local queer organizations in defending trans rights. Similarly, many of the recent Palestine marches have been marshaled by Queers for Palestine, despite the very targeted attempts by Zionists to pit the queer community against the Muslim community. In Toronto, No Pride in Policing Coalition was formed to support Black Lives Matter movement and have been linking the struggle for racial justice with queer liberation. They have been organizing abolitionist pride marches on the streets of Toronto. We highlight these moments and these organizations to document the existence of concrete solidarity between workers against all odds and to ensure that the tides of history do not erase the slow but significant progress we make. This episode was recorded on the traditional territory of many nations, including the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabeg, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat peoples. It was produced by Spencer Bridgman, Ayana Aiden, and Sara Shahid, with original music by Benjamin Bilgen. Lastly, to read and listen to more from Spring and find out how to join the Spring Socialist Network, please visit springmag.ca.